Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. It's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. At the end of our previous episode, Vestron Pictures was starting to experience the turbulence a number of independent distributors faced when they had a successful film too soon out of the gate. And the direction of the company seemingly changes to go chasing more waterfalls instead of sticking to the rivers and lakes they were used to. Welcome to part three of our mini-series. As we enter 1989, Vestron Pictures is seriously in trouble. More money has gone out than has come back in. It seems that they needed one more hit to keep going for a while longer. But if you were to look at their release schedule for the year, which included a pickup from the recently bankrupt De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, there wasn't really anything that felt like it could be a dirty dancing-like breakout, except for maybe the pickup from the recently bankrupt De Laurentiis Entertainment Group. But we'll get there in a moment. Their first film from 1989 is a certifiable cult film if there ever was one. But the problem with this label is that the film tagged as so was not a success upon its initial theatrical release. Bob Balaban, the beloved character actor who has been regularly seen on screens since his memorable debut in Midnight Cowboy 20 years earlier, would make his directorial debut with the black comedy horror film Parents. Brian Magdorsky stars as Michael Lemley, a 10-year-old boy living in the California suburbs of the 1950s, who starts to suspect his mom and dad, played by Mary Beth Hurt and Randy Quaid, might be cannibals. It's a strange but fun little movie, and even Ken Russell would compare it favorably over David Lynch's Blue Velvet during one contemporary interview. But, sadly, it would take far more time for the film to find its audience than Vestron could afford. Opening in 94 theaters on January 27th, the $3 million parents could not overcome a series of negative reviews from critics and would only gross $278,000 in its first three days. Vestron would not strike any additional prints of the film and would cycle the ones they did have around the country for several months. But after four months, the film could only attract about $870,000 in box office receipts. But, as I said before, it would become something of a cult hit on video later in the year. In 1992, the British filmmaker Bernard Rose would make his American directing debut with the all-time banger Candyman. But he wouldn't have gotten Candyman if it wasn't for his 1989 film Paper House, an inventive story about a young girl whose drawings seemed to manifest into reality. British actor Ben Cross from Chariots of Fire and American actress Glenn Headley from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels plays the young girl's parents. Outside of Gene Siskel, who would give the film a thumbs down on his movie review show with Roger Ebert, despite acknowledging Rose's talents as a filmmaker and admitting to being fascinated by the first two-thirds of the film, the critical consensus on Paper House was extraordinary. But it appears Siskel may have never actually written a review of the film for the Chicago Tribune, as the film still has a 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But the film had only earned $6,700 from its single screen play date at the Carnegie Hall Cinemas in New York, where it opened on February 17th, and the film would get little support from Bestron after that. More single play dates in major cities added up to about $241,000 in box office total after 14 weeks in release. Mark Rocco's Dream a Little Dream would be the third film in the two Corey's cinematic universe. Corey Feldman plays a high school student who, through one of the strangest plot twists in the whole body-switching genre, 
finds himself switching places with two-time Academy Award winner Jason Robards, playing a professor who is looking for immortality through entering a meditative alpha state. Meredith Salinger and Piper Laurie also find themselves switching bodies as well, while Corey Haim plays the goofball best friend with not a whole lot to do. The supporting cast also includes veteran character actors Harry Dean Stanton and Alex Rocco, the latter who agreed to do the film because it was directed by his son. When the film opened on March 3rd, it would be Vestron's second widest release, opening on more than 1,000 theaters. But just like the previous year's License to Drive, the pairing of Corey Haim and Corey Feldman did not set the box office on fire. The film had opened in fifth place with $2.57 million in ticket sales, compared to the number one film of the week, the Morgan Freeman drama Lean on Me, which would gross twice as much as Dream of a Little Dream, while playing on 125 fewer screens. In its second week, the film would lose 56 theaters and 52% of its opening weekend audience, falling all the way to 13th place with a gross of only $1.25 million. By week three, the movie would move to dollar houses and trudge along for several more months, until it closed in the middle of summer with only $5.55 million in the till. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, writer-director Jeremy Paul Kagan had directed and occasionally written several big-ticket movies, including the 1977 Henry Winkler drama Heroes, which also starred Sally Field and, in his first post-Star Wars movie, Harrison Ford, and the 1985 Meredith Salinger John Cusack adventure film The Journey of Natty Gann, which makes his Natty Gann follow-up Big Man on Campus such a head-scratcher. A modern adaptation of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Big Man on Campus was written by Alan Katz, who had been working in television for nearly 20 years, writing for and producing shows like All in the Family, Sanford and Son, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and MASH. Katz would also star in the movie as the titular Hunchback, even though he had never once acted on any of his shows. But at least he had a good supporting cast, including Garrett Graham, Melora Hardin, Jessica Harper, Tom Skerritt, and... Cindy Williams. I can only find one playdate for the film ever in Los Angeles at the American Cinematheque in March of 1989, so while this mostly qualifies as a direct-to-video release, I feel compelled to at least give it a token mention here. Have you ever heard of a movie called The Fruit Machine? Of course you haven't, because that's a horrible name for a movie no matter what it's about. When Vestron acquired this British drama about young gay men who go on the run after they witness a murder, the first thing they did was change the title to Wonderland. Not that Wonderland gives you any more of an idea of what the movie is about than the fruit machine, but whatever. Today, the movie has two things going for it. One, an early role for Robbie Coltrane, playing a transvestite who operates a nightclub for gay men and transvestites called, you guessed it, The Fruit Machine. And second, the musical score was written by Hans Zimmer in one of his earliest film jobs. Ironically, Wonderland would be the third movie scored by Hans Zimmer to be released by Vestron in a four-month period, after Burning Secret and Paper House. Wonderland would open at the Quad Cinemas in New York City on April 28th to poor reviews but a decent $11,500 opening weekend gross. But the film would not be able to maintain much of an audience, and after five weeks, Wonderland was out of the Quad Cinemas, never to play another theater in America, with just $50,000 in the till. Ken Russell's third and final film in his contract with Vestron was The Rainbow, an adaptation of a 1915 novel by 
D.H. Lawrence, whose 1920 novel Women in Love had been adapted by Russell in 1969. Glenda Jackson, who had won the Academy Award for her role in Women in Love, here plays the mother of the character she played in the other film. Here, she co-stars with Sammy Davis as Ursula, the younger sister of Jackson's Women in Love character, who finds herself attracted to Anton, a young man in town, as well as her gym teacher, Winifred. As one would expect from Ken Russell, the supporting cast is top-notch, including future Eighth Doctor Paul McGeehan, regular Russell collaborator Christopher Gable, and blow-up star David Hemmings. The film would open at the Paris Theater in New York City on May 5th, where it would gross a very good $22,000, spurred on by great reviews from most of the city's major critics, several of which noted the film to be Russell's best in a number of years. So it would be sad that the film would end up being the lowest grossing of the three films he made with Vestron, only earning a total of $444,000 after three months and mostly single playdates in major markets. In 1985, Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum worked together for the first time on a forgettable horror comedy called Transylvania 65000, whose name was a pun on a popular 1940 song recorded by Glenn Miller. In 1986, the pair would work together again on David Cronenberg's amazing remake of the cheesy 1950s horror film The Fly. And in late 1987, shortly after the pair married, they would work together again for a third time on another comedy and on a movie that this time was actually based on a real song. Earth Girls Are Easy was the name of a song that appeared on comedian Julie Brown's 1984 EP, Goddess in Progress, and was originally developed as a movie at Warner Brothers Studios. The studio would get cold feet when Absolute Beginners, the big British musical directed by music video director Julian Temple, failed big time everywhere in the world except for the UK. Temple was slated to direct Earth Girls Are Easy, and Brown, as the co-writer and co-star of the film, was committed to the filmmaker, even if it meant Warner's putting the film into turnaround, which they did in 1986. It would take nearly a year for the project to get back on track after being rejected by every other major studio and production company in Hollywood, until the French banking giant Credit Lyonnais agreed to finance the film provided they could cut the budget from $14 million to $10 million, and if the filmmakers could make a distribution deal with the bank's preferred distributor, the then-newly formed De Laurentiis Entertainment Group. The film, about a manicurist in Los Angeles who helps three aliens blend into human culture after they accidentally crash-land their spaceship into her pool, would begin production in Los Angeles in October of 1987. Gina Davis plays the manicurist and Jeff Goldblum one of the aliens, alongside Damon Wayans and Jim Carrey. While the remaining cast would include a number of great comedic actors like Mash's Larry Linville, Michael McKean, Rick Overton, and Charles Rocket, as well as Los Angeles media personality Angeline as basically herself. While the film was nearing completion in early 1988, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group would go out of business, leaving Credit Lyonnais in need of a new distributor for their investment. After Temple turned in his first cut of the film, Credit Lyonnais would send Temple back into his editing bay, where he and his team would spend another five months winnowing out various scenes and completely excising a big and expensive musical number based on one of the other songs on Brown's 1984 EP, I Like Him Big and Stupid, because it just didn't work for the film. Additional scenes would be shot, and the budget would end up being at $11 million. 
The film would have its premiere at the Toronto Film Festival in September 1988 and attract attention from a number of distributors, including MGM UA, New World Pictures, and 20th Century Fox, but Festron would end up putting in the winning bid. The film would originally be set for a February 1989 release, but it would get delayed until May 12th. When it finally opened on 317 screens in Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, Philly, San Francisco, Toronto, and Washington, D.C., the film would gross $893,000, putting it in 12th place for the weekend. But its per-screen average would be the fourth best amongst the films in the top 20. The film would fall one place in its second week, losing 35% of its opening week audience, grossing $577,000. The film would slowly hemorrhage theaters and box office until the plug was pulled in mid-July with only $3.9 million in tickets sold. The sole lasting legacy of the film is that Damon Wayans enjoyed working so much with Jim Carrey that when Damon's brother Keenan Ivory Wayans was putting a new comedy television show together thanks to the success of his movie, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, Damon would get his brother to give Carrey a chance. In Living Color would make Carrey and the Wayans brothers stars and would change the course of comedy. So, there's that. In late June the Lightning Pictures imprint would release their first movie in nearly two years, Far From Home. The movie starred the then 14-year-old Drew Barrymore as a young girl traveling cross-country with her father, who gets stuck in a small desert town in Nevada on their way back to Los Angeles, who must deal with some very strange characters in the trailer park they're staying in. As they slowly discover, nothing is as it's supposed to be. Bat Frewer, Max Headroom himself, plays the dad, who must protect his daughter while he figures out how to get the hell out of town alive. Truth be told, the movie sucks, and it's really creepy in how it sexualizes Barrymore. But there's one hell of a great supporting cast doing their best to keep the joint from totally stinking the place up. Richard Masur, Academy Award nominee Susan Tyrell, Anthony Rapp from Adventures in Babysitting, Jennifer Tilly, and the beloved character actor Dick Miller. When Vestron opened the film in four theaters in third-tier regions on June 30th. It was a little surprise that the film got some very bad notices, although one unnamed reviewer for Variety felt the need to note that Barrymore, who again was only 14 at the time, had, quote, a baby face, dreamy eyes, and a Playboy model's body, unquote. <sighs> the film would gross just $3,763 in its first and only weekend in theaters. But that wasn't even the worst news of the week for Vestron. On the same day as they opened Far From Home, Vestron had been informed by Security Pacific Bank in Los Angeles that the $100 million line of credit the company had with them was being terminated. 140 of the approximately 300 Vestron staff members, mostly from the Los Angeles office, were let go, including the president of production, the senior vice president of marketing and distribution, and the vice president of publicity and promotion. While Vestron Video would continue for a while, in large part thanks to a $15.7 million payoff during a dispute over home video ownership to the rights of the 1986 Best Picture winner Platoon, the theatrical distribution unit was effectively dead. Some movies, including the Fred Savage Howie Mandel comedy Little Monsters, the Harry Dean Stanton-led comedy Twister, and the Catherine Bigelow-directed action film Blue Steel, with Jamie Lee Curtis, would be sold off to other companies. But the titles left behind would see their planned theatrical releases canceled, 
and eventually be released direct-to-video. Thanks to some of the legacy titles in their video catalog, including Dirty Dancing, Vestron Video would be able to stave off the inevitable for a while. But in January of 1991, the company would file for bankruptcy, their final official film being the Stan Winston-directed fantasy buddy comedy, The Adventures of a Gnome Named Norm. Filmed in 1988 as Upward, the film featured Anthony Michael Hall as a Los Angeles police detective who was to team up with a gnome, a puppet created by Winston, the effects wizard who also directed the film, to solve a murder. For Winston, it was deja vu all over again, as his previous directorial effort, Pumpkinhead, found itself in limbo for a while when its distributor, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, filed for bankruptcy in 1988 before they could release that film. In bankruptcy court, Live Entertainment, partially owned by the 1990s mega-movie production company Kuroko Pictures, would purchase all of Vestron's assets for $24 million. Live used those assets as collateral to secure a line of credit from industry-friendly banks so they could start their own production and distribution company, of which their only moment of note was helping to finance Reservoir Dogs when no one else would. Eventually, live entertainment would be sold off to Bain Capital, a private investment firm co-founded by Mitt Romney in 1997, and they would rebrand live as Artisan Entertainment. Artisan today is best known as the little independent distributor of the Blair Witch Project, but they would also enter into an agreement with Marvel Comics to make movies for 15 of their characters, including Ant-Man, Black Panther, Deadpool, Iron Fist, Longshot, Morbius, Mort the Dead Teenager, and The Power Pack. Artisan would produce two movies based on Marvel characters, Man-Thing and The Punisher, although neither of those films would be released by Artisan. Artisan would declare bankruptcy in 2003, and Marvel would be one of the companies to place a bid for them. Lionsgate would end up becoming the winning bidder for Artisan's assets, which is how the vast majority of Vestron titles are now owned by a company that didn't even exist when Vestron closed shop. Today, Lionsgate is the owner of the assets of a number of the companies we've spoken about on this podcast in the past and will be talking about in the future, including Crown International, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, Embassy Pictures, and New World Pictures. And it's also a major reason why so many of the movies that we've discussed in these episodes looking back at past companies are completely unknown today. As big as Lionsgate is, With nearly $3.6 billion in revenue in 2022, they are going to be able to keep up with the chain of ownership for every movie from every company they've purchased, and they're not going to be putting any money into movies that are barely remembered today. The Film Foundation, the nonprofit organization co-founded by Woody Allen, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, and Steven Spielberg, which is dedicated to film preservation, estimates that the average cost to do a photochemical restoration of a color feature with sound to be between $80,000 and $450,000, not including the cost of a 2K or 4K digital scan. I'm going to have a uh, link in the show notes on our website at the80smoviepodcast.com to a November 2018 article from the Science History Institute about the process of restoring films. It's not a long read, only four or five minutes, but it's fascinating. I hope you'll check it out. So. There you have it, the end of the line for Vestron Pictures and many of the movies they helped to make and distribute, most of which you cannot find in any form today. 
Thank you for listening. We'll talk again next week when episode 105 on the 1985 teen comedy O.C. and Stiggs, directed by Robert Altman, will be discussed. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about the movies that we've covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.